What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Media. Hello and welcome to the show. Which one that is this it? This one is not the other shows that are cool people who did cool stuff. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy, and this is a history show about cool people who did cool stuff. My guest this week and last week and forever—well, unfortunately, <laughs> not forever—but we're gonna have have her on as much as possible. Is Miriam? Hi, Miriam. Hi. So happy to be back. Miriam is our resident tall ship expert, which is <laughs> definitely a big part of this. But we still haven't revealed the reason that Miriam is the guest this week. That's and it's not come at the tall end. ships. I will, no, however, bring ships. up tall ships whenever I can. Yeah, no, I'm, you know, most of this is going to take place in the Dakotas. So I will be impressed. I know I texted you about the time the American Indian movement took over the replica of the Mayflower. Did okay. did we ever find out anything more about that? No, unfortunately, it's not, Damn a, it. not a part of this. They took over so many things. It's There's true. like I, I there are entire takeovers that are like footnotes in the book that I read and like it's impressive. Okay, but first our producer, Sophie, is also Hi. on the call. It's me, your producer, Sophie. Hi. Our audio engineer is named Ian. Hi, Hi, it's Ian. Hi. Hi, Ian. Our theme music was written for us by Unwoman. And this is part four of a four-parter on Lakota resistance to uh, the American empire. And it's also a broader, we'll figure out titling, make it right. Because it is absolutely broader than Lakota resistance. It was like the first week was that, and now we're going to be talking about all this other stuff. There's so much. 
There's so much, and I was like, this. I can't actually right now make this into like a six or eight parter, so I think I'll be back to do a lot more of this stuff. But where we last left our heroes, and you will be completely not caught up if you don't go back and listen to at least Monday's episode, if not last week's episodes, is that the American Indian movement is uh, reigning champs of taking stuff over, and Leonard Peltier, Peltier uh, is on the run, and, well, he will be soon the the time stuff is let's just go into it we're gonna take this story over now to pine ridge where a super shitty corrupt asshole named dick wilson and i'm not saying that everyone with the name dick is a bad person but it it's a little on the nose you're setting yourself up like if your name is richard and you're gonna be a real piece of shit maybe don't like introduce yourself with like call me dick because we're already gonna. Because it's like, it would be a good ironic name. Like a really, if you're, if you're Richard and you're a really sweet guy, go by Dick. It is like kind of funny, you know? Yeah. Your kids will, because no one under the age of 70 goes by the name Dick. But this Dick, Dick Wilson, had just become president of the Pine Ridge Tribal Council. Uh, he'd already almost been indicted for embezzling money even before he was ever uh, president. And he is quoted as saying, quote, there is nothing in tribal law against nepotism. (laughs) So he immediately gave huge salaries to his wife, brother, cousins, sons, and nephew. And these are salaries of like $25,000 a year, which I looked up. $25,000 in 1973 is about $173,000 today. Pretty nice salary. Wouldn't you feel like if you're describing what you're doing as nepotism, that that's like kind of a burn on the people that you're like, if you're like, ah, yes, let me hire my my, wife, son, cousin for nepotism reasons. Like, you don't even want to try to pretend they're good at their jobs. Like, no. Yeah. Just to fucking just give them all of the money. He's he is an absolute grifter. Um the median salary on Pine Ridge Reservation was $800 a year, and he is paying um, more than 25 times that to a fuck ton of his relatives. Man, this dick. For some weird reason that we'll explain at great length over the course of the next hour, he hated the American Indian movement. He hated Russell Means in particular, uh, because Russell Means kept um, was going to run against him, you know? He kept arresting AIM leaders every chance he could. They kept trying to get him impeached. The votes to impeach him got more votes than he'd gotten as votes in the actual election. <laughs> but nothing was done. He also, a uh, classic move here, had his own paramilitary force. Like every fascist ever. He had, in addition to you know being involved with the, the BIA police, He had the Guardians of the Oglala Nation, or Goons. They were known as Goons. Especially later in the story, they're going to kill a fuck ton of people. He sold off the land to white people at discount rates. He leased one-eighth of the reservation to private companies. And so the government loves him. Yeah. Because... I mean, this is their whole shit. Yeah. Because they're all about the resource extraction. Um, and he is leasing out mineral rights and selling shit to white people. That's so much. Like, you have to actually 
like get up pretty early in the morning and like put in the hours to to do that much harm. Yeah. Yeah, but but Dick was willing to do it, you know? Dick gets it done. That was his Um, are we mature enough to take this topic on margaret i don't know i'm not sure so when another guy wesley badheart bull was murdered by a random white racist who literally said to his friend i'm gonna go kill me an indian and then went out and killed wesley badheart bull Ames showed up um there's this whole big thing Riot is another way to describe it, but we'll go with thing. Yeah, where same. basically AIM was like showed up to talk to officials, and so they all the cops attacked. The cops beat up Wesley's mother when she tried to enter the courthouse. Jesus Christ! Yeah. So folks rioted. They overturned two cop cars and set them on fire. The Chamber of Commerce next door, which was empty for the night, was burned to the ground. That's okay. Nobody knows what a Chamber of Commerce even does. That's... I don't know what a Chamber of Commerce does. I wasn't sure. It was. It referred to it as the abandoned Chamber of Commerce, and I was like, <laughs> I think that means it's empty for the night. Maybe it was actually just an abandoned building, and they were like, fuck this building. I don't know. Whatever. That means you're legally allowed to set it on fire. I, I mean, yeah. So the courthouse cops beat up a grieving mother on the steps of Custer Courthouse. Jesus! In the city of... You gotta warn me. You kept warning me when you weren't shocking me, and then you spring something like Custer Courthouse on me, and that actually does shock me. Yeah, yeah, no, it was Custer Courthouse in the city of Custer in the county of Custer. And Sarah Badhart Bull, the mother, was arrested alongside 29 others for these riots. She went on to spend five months in prison for the riot. Her son's killer... Got two months probation. Jesus. At this point, local folks are asking AIM to help deal with Dick Wilson and get justice for all of this shit that's happening, right? And so people decided to take a stand. And so they went to a symbolic place. They went to a small town called Wounded Knee, which was the the place that the massacre was at the end of last week's episodes of 1890. On February 27th, 1973, 200 indigenous folks occupied the town and changed history. And because this stuff gets argued a lot, right? AIM is like, you ever run across the outside agitator uh, thing? I'm familiar with the outside agitator thing. Yeah. So basically, whenever there's a, a rowdy thing, people are like, obviously, people who live here would never be rowdy. There is a mythical place called Outside, where all of the bad people come from. And so, like, later, AIM is going to be accused by the state of being outside agitators. So that's why I'm pointing out that AIM was instrumental in the occupation of Wounded Knee, but they were explicitly invited there by all of the traditional leaders of the Oglala Lakota. People of all sorts of indigenous nations showed up, invited, and occupied the town of Wounded Knee. To quote a woman named Madonna Gilbert, quote, The elders said, What can we do to wake these Indians up? We have to take a stand somewhere. So we decided that the symbolic place would be Wounded Knee. What happened there was never expected. We figured we'd just be there two or three days. We were never told to bring food or anything. I just had my jacket and my purse and my two kids. 
We didn't realize what was happening until we were surrounded. We never broke the law in any way or did one thing wrong. It was the feds who were breaking the law by being on the reservation without jurisdiction, without any real permission from the people. Because, yeah, 200 people show up to Wounded Knee to to do a big symbolic thing. As soon as they show up, the U.S. Marshals surround the place with sandbags and machine gun nests, armored personnel carriers, uh, 133,000 rounds of 5.56 ammunition for their M16s. The excuse that the government used is that the indigenous people had white hostages because there was white people who lived in Wounded Knee. Uh, It's true that white people lived in Wounded Knee. It is not true that the American Indian movement had hostages. This is not speculation on my part. When most left when the occupation started, most of the white people left, no one stopped them from doing that. The others were like, no, we're good. We live here. We'll stay as voluntary hostages. Take it from, yeah, take it from Wilbur Riegert, who was 82 years old at the time, or maybe when he was interviewed 10 years later. He's not a young man. He said, quote, we as a group of hostages decided to stay on to save AIM and our own property. Had we not, those troops would have come down here and killed all those people. The real hostages are the AIM people. Because they weren't allowed out, you know? Yeah. Yeah, people being held somewhere is kind of definitionally. Yeah. And so, like... Wow. Yeah, like, good on those people, you know? Fuck, yeah, that is... Um, Eventually, all of the white residents left, not because of AIM, uh, because of the threat and the actual violence from the government. Because the government kept shooting up the town, even though there were quote-unquote hostages there. Never change settler colonialism. Yeah. Um, if if only there were a contemporary uh, parallel to a government that was very, very, very concerned about hostages. Um, except when it comes shoot, to keeping them safe. <laughs> except except when it ca- comes to uh, doing absolutely anything to keeping them safe. Yeah. Yeah. So some of the people who are there. One Oglala woman said her grandfather had barely survived the 1890 Wounded Knee Massacre, so she wasn't going to leave her people to die alone. And she wasn't a fighter. She never picked up arms, but she stayed. On March 9th, the first firefight broke out. No one knows who started it. On March 10th, the government lifted the blockade, hoping the AIM rabble-rousers, like the outside agitators, would all just flee, you know? Um, They they didn't. Spoiler. Uh, I mean... Because the outside agitator thing, the only like it only makes sense if you are a government provocateur trying to get people in trouble. Like yeah. a government provocateur trying to get people in trouble might embed themselves with a group, kick off some spicy shit, and then immediately leave. But like right. somebody who's actually trying to get a cause going or like trying to support something, they're not going to do that. So it's like law enforcement can only think like law enforcement. Like they can't actually. Yeah. They have this mythical outside agitator who is just them. Yeah, totally. Like how the right wing is always like, oh, they bust. They're like, they bust across the country or whatever. And it's like, no, they bust across the country. Anti-fascists are everywhere. Yeah. Like I've literally, like I've been at, um, like a while back, there was this, uh, there were a bunch of protests in lower Manhattan because 
there was an Islamic center being reopened near um near the World Trade Center like and this like on Fox News became the Ground Zero mosque it was a whole thing yeah. i i saw buses from like fucking Alabama show up in Manhattan and like unload entire church congregations to like show up and oppose this and it's like that's the thing that they always accuse us of doing you know yeah. because it's what they do like yeah absolutely so no one flees on march 10th or maybe some people i don't whatever the occupation continues on march 11th the occupiers declare the independent oglala nation and propose to discuss its treaty with the u.s as equals and the press eats this all up. Uh, the European press called it Wounded Knee 2. And, and actually, most of the press is positive at this point, as far as I can tell. The ceasefire was broken within days, and the blockade was back on. Lawyers from St. Paul formed the, this is the best name any legal organization has ever had, as far as I can tell. They formed the Wounded Knee Legal Defense Slash Offense Committee. <laughs> Hell Yeah. <laughs> The FBI declared that group a revolutionary organization for arguing that the blockade was illegal. I mean, fine. Yeah, I, didn't I know, know exactly. the FBI could do that. Yeah. Their work in the courts got a temporary restraining order in place and also got six lawyers and six carloads of food into the occupation. Nice. I like how the, you, you've been highlighting this a lot, but I just like want to mention like how much you see AIM like working from all angles. On yeah. this, like on the ground occupation, court battles like going on, yeah, at you know at the same time and for the same goals. That absolutely, helps. and civil disobedience alongside alongside armed occupations, just depending on what is necessary at that time. You know, yeah. So the army eventually shows up. Ironically, it's possible that the presence of the army is what kept the FBI and the U.S. Marshals from just like running in and murdering everyone. That asshole tribal leader, Dick Wilson, and his goons, they set up another blockade around the government one, trying to support the government one. And soon they're calling on non-native patriots to come and join with guns to put down the Oglala Rebellion. Wait, who is calling for that? The, the goons? The goons. Or? Yeah, Dick Wilson oh and God. his goons. Yeah. So they're calling on the like white militias, basically. Yeah. When you definitely have the safety and well-being of indigenous people at heart. That's what you do is you call for white militias. Yeah. Inside the occupation, Leonard Crowdog, who, as I pointed out, was the um, one of the first uh, spiritual leaders to support the American Indian movement, he brought back the ghost dance after receiving a vision from his great-grandfather. And it was the first time that it had been danced in 83 years, according to at least, I believe, him. By March 26th, the last phone line into the place was cut by the feds, and the last news crew, NBC, was forced out by the feds, which um, is not when good things happen. No, when they make you turn off the cameras. Yeah. As soon as the news crews were gone, they just started shooting the shit out of the town. Uh, 5,000 to 20,000 rounds in total were shot on that one day alone into the town. The reason that more people didn't die is that a fuck ton of the AIM folks were vets and they'd been digging bunkers because they had just come back from yeah. fucking Vietnam. No one, mm -hmm, I think no one was killed that day. There's a couple of people who are going to die. I'll talk about them. But 
One U.S. Marshal was wounded during that firefight, almost certainly by one of the goons. Even the U.S. Marshals admit that. They were like, oh, this is the most likely thing, right? Well, you set up you set up a ring of yeah. guys around a ring of guys around yeah. a town. Yeah. Like, you can't shoot over the inner ring of guys. Like, that's... That's not how bullets work. No, the Patriot isn't there with artillery. They're there with fucking guns. Um, five members of AIM are later going to be charged for this wounding that even the U.S. Marshals admit wasn't AIM. By the end of March, AIM was ready to negotiate, and they were starting to run out of food. Their demand was to start talking seriously about the fucking terms of the 1868 Treaty. And... Just as an aside, I can't remember if we talked about this last time or not. We act like the broken treaties are like endlessly long ago, right? I think, was it you who brought this up? 1868 is a hell of a lot more recent than plenty of the laws that we enforce in the United States. Like, I don't know, the fucking Constitution of the United States. I don't think I am the one who brought that up, but like, yeah, it's... It also, like, you can't just be like, oh, well, it was a long time ago, so it doesn't matter when you're like... Yeah, like just saying like, well, if we wait long enough after the the broken treaty, then it's like it's not broken anymore. And it, it's like, so by failing to redress the harm, you have negated the harm? Like, no, that's the, the literal opposite of, of how that works. Like that works when you have like some drama in your social scene. Like right. that works for like your interactions with other people's polydrama. You yeah, know? exactly. You're like, you know, oh, like... You were both kind of dicks and during that breakup, and I'm kind of mad. And then a couple years later, you're like, whatever, you know? Yeah, that, that works if somebody is like, let's just cool off. But you can't yeah. like, you can't commit genocide and dispossess people and like commit massacres and be like, let's just cool off for a bit. We've forgotten about it, haven't you? Yeah. Well, and so what the government said to them was, well, we can't talk about the 1868 treaty. Because of the 1871 thing where we can't negotiate with you like you're a government. And so AIM was like, I hate to be the one to explain how chronology works, but 1868 is actually a lower number than 1871. (laughs) And the treaty precedes that. Russell Means, who's one of the leaders of this occupation, he says, quote, and it's a long quote, but I think it's worth it. This is our last gasp as a sovereign people, and if we don't get these treaty rights recognized as equal to the Constitution of the United States, as by law they are, then you might as well kill me, because I have no reason for living. And that's why I'm here in Wounded Knee, because nobody is recognizing the Indian people as human beings. They're laughing it off in Time Magazine and Newsweek, and the editors in New York and what have you. They're treating this as a silly matter, just as they've treated Indian people throughout history. We're tired of being treated this way, and we're not going to be treated like that anymore. You're going to have to kill us, because I'm not going to die in some barroom brawl. I'm not going to die in a car wreck on some lonely road on the reservation because I've been drinking to escape the oppression of this goddamn society. I'm not going to die when I walk into Pine Ridge and Dickie's goons feel like I should be offed. That's not the way I'm going to die. I'm going to die fighting for my treaty rights. Period. We haven't demanded any radical changes here, only that the United States government live up to its own laws. It is precedent-setting that a group of radicals, who in the minds of some are acting outside the law, are just in turn asking the law to live up to its own. We are not asking for any radical changes. 
We're just asking for the law to be e- equitably applied to all. Fuck yeah. I, f- I feel like that's what yeah. I say every time you get done reading a quote. You've been reading some fucking bangers. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Stick to the terms of the 1868 treaty is a moderate demand. Absolutely. Get the hell off the entire continent would be a radical, though reasonable demand. Right. Totally. And like the fact that they're willing to like come to the table with stick to the agreement you already made with us is like a huge concession on their part. Absolutely. You know what else is a huge concession? The fact that Con- talking concessions. about the, oh, that's good. I was going to say is our concession to capitalism that we let it interject into anti-capitalist history. I was picturing it like you're a movie theater and like sending people out oh, to the yeah. lobby to the concession Let's all stand. Go to the lo- I, mean, I actually don't know if I'm allowed. Maybe I might be copyrighted. Uh, go buy some popcorn from our advertisers. Here it goes. Here they are. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late everyone, there was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry though, he's fully recovered. (gasps) Good one dad. (sighs) Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. And we're back. So by April 5th, the government signed an agreement with them. A delegation of folks would submit to arrest post-bond and go to D.C. to discuss all of this. 
Russell Means, Leonard Crowdog, and Chief Tom Badcob did so. Get ready, put on your shocked face. See, every time you say that, the U.S. government breaks a promise. I know, but every time I don't say it, they do too. They just don't. That's, that's they're not, true. They're not good at keeping promises. It's almost like they never intended to. By the time they got to D.C., the government went back on their word and said they wouldn't negotiate unless everyone in Wounded Knee disarmed. Well, that's a different thing from what they said before. Yeah, and there's some bad history of people in Wounded Knee being asked to disarm. Yeah. It is less that history repeats itself and more like the U.S. government has not changed in the fucking slightest. It's, yeah, history doesn't repeat itself so much as the U.S. government doesn't learn and expects that other people won't either. Yeah, totally. Uh, so they literally just want to disarm the rebels and Wounded Knee after lying about being willing to negotiate again. And the delegation said, sure, we can do that. We will disarm only if everyone in Wounded Knee, your side as well as ours, is disarmed. And the government is like flabbergasted. They're like, what? There's like all of these like long quotes from cops who are like, but I need my gun. I can't <laughs> do things without it's, a gun. It's um, all I have. Yeah. This because gun control is all it's fucking been in the United States is we want the guns in the hands of cops, not indigenous people resisting colonization. So by April 8th, folks were like, well, then I guess it's a long fucking siege because they didn't give in. Supplies were carried in by supporters, I believe both indigenous and non-indigenous, who carried them through the snow at night, hiking for miles with 40-pound bags of food past two different fucking encirclements, right? Incredible. Yeah. One of which... That's so brave. I don't know whether I'd be more afraid... I would be more afraid of hiking through the, like, militia blockade because that's the one... No, they would both shoot you. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah, but, like, the... I... Yeah, it's it's very much a like six of one. It's like if somebody if somebody if I'm hiking past militia and cops or army or whatever, and like a scary noise happens, I know they're both going to open fire from all directions. You yeah. know, and That's shoot like, each other, and then you're exactly, going to go to jail. Shoot for each it. other. I'm going to get shot. I'm going to go to jail after having been shot for yeah. them shooting each other. Like it's a bad scene. Yeah, it's very scary. I'm like, yeah. That's very cool that people did that. Many were arrested, but more kept coming. And there was one particularly outrageous stunt that, like, there's a whole book about. Um, three planes parachuted in 1,500 pounds of food. Hell yeah! And this was, like, all these, like, Vietnam vet hippie types, you know? Um, and it, it was, like, a... so cool! They had... Yeah. That's awesome! Yeah, they... And they, like... Where did they was... get a plane? What's that? Where did they get a plane? Well, that was a big part of it. They had like, they were going to do this one plane and then it wasn't big enough. So then they were like, we're going to get this really big plane, but then they couldn't get it. So then they were like, we're going to take these three small planes. And then like one of them, like, I think got, oh God, I I, I didn't write it into the script. I, I think one of them like lost its tail during part of the fucking delivery. I think it might've gotten shot. I can't remember. And it still did it. And they like. Amazing. They. They did some seriously badass shit to get 1,500 pounds of food into this occupation. I do love, like, mm -hmm. during the 70s, security at airports was basically like, well, if you walk up and wave a piece of paper, you can probably steal a plane. 
Oh, they didn't steal the plane. They rented planes. Oh, they, or like They were all like a bunch of pilots. They were like flying their oh, planes wow. and like... Oh, shit. Okay. Yeah, no, this is like... This is like piloty people who are like, hell yeah, this is what we're going to do. You this know? isn't just people who came back from Vietnam knowing how to fly planes. This is people who were like still flying planes as their job and like had access to planes. I think that they were back and renting planes. I I can't oh, okay. remember. I don't know where you get planes. Like, I don't, I don't know how this um, works. But yeah, no, awesome. I, I think some people had their own plane and some people... I, I, I listened to a really long thing about it that was totally worth listening to, but there's a lot of ins and outs. Uh, that okay. I didn't write into it. But planes what I, were obtained. Planes were obtained. Uh, food was dropped. Government snipers tried to kill the children who went out to get it. Jesus. Sometimes I, it gets represented or like as un, possibly understood by its participants. Not only as more of a long hair versus short hair fight than red versus white. Because a good chunk of the people laying siege were those goons and like BIA and all these folks, right? A mm-hmm. lot of whom are indigenous. Short hair indigenous folks and their short hair vigilante white allies. While the guys flying airplanes of food in were these like long haired white guys. Ah, right. And at one point to Allie's suspicions, they're at an also airport. Also didn't realize the plane guys were white. Okay. Oh, yeah. I couldn't promise you all of them are, but I, I believe they Probably are. not. Mm-hmm. At one point, in order to uh, allay suspicions, they pretended that they were a rock band who was going to airdrop <laughs> sound equipment ahead of a show. <laughs> you know how rock um, bands, how rock bands are always, how rock bands have their own air force and are always yeah. airdropping. They're like we're metalocalypse, yeah. Um, <laughs> we're Spinal Tap, yeah. And so, and it absolutely, this is about indigenous rights, but length of hair was a powerful symbol at that time. Oh, yeah. The, the establishment in the 60s and 70s was absolutely terrified of anybody whose hair went past their ears. Yeah. April 17th, a Cherokee occupier named Frank Clearwater was gunned down in a firefight uh, less than 24 hours after he arrived. Um, I, I read one version where he actually wasn't in the firefight. The firefight was happening, and he was, like, in the church. Another man who died is a way murkier situation. A black civil rights activist named Ray Robinson showed up and then was never seen again. And there's an awful lot of versions about, of this story, and I suspect everyone's lying, frankly. The most likely thing is that AIM activists killed him for one reason or another and buried his body. It's never been found. Some folks say that he was killed because people thought he was an FBI spy. Others say that they killed him in self-defense, that he came at people with a knife. Other folks, generally anti-AIM folks, say that personality conflicts uh, made some people really angry and that he like came in preaching nonviolence and wouldn't pick up a gun in a firefight and be, people were like, you fucking coward. No one who knows is talking. Like, some of the AIM leaders are like, I've never heard that name. And people are like, this guy? And they're like, no, I don't know. I don't know anything about him. This won't be, this isn't the only potential murder by AIM during their years. Just, it's, I, but I don't know the, I don't know. Yeah. The government would turn water off and on again to fuck with people. They couldn't turn it off permanently because it would disrupt water to the outlying areas where, like, white people might live, you know? It was during the Wounded Knee 2 
during Wounded Knee 2, it doesn't have a the, there's no definite article here, that Marlon Brando refused an Oscar for his performance in The Godfather and had an indigenous woman named Sasheen Littlefeather give a speech in his place. Uh, it's a pretty worth watching. I think she was only only able to give a, a tiny part of the speech. Yes. Is is what I remember hearing that that she had the two of them had collaboratively written a long statement that that she was supposed to read and um she basically got thirty seconds to give a statement and then was like rushed out of there before John Wayne could beat the shit out of her, which she was attempting to do. Yep. And in the prepared speech, which she then later read to press, it specifically talked about wounded name. God. Forgot about the John Wayne. I didn't forget about the John Wayne part. I tried to forget about the John Wayne part, you know? Yeah. No, like a real piece of shit, that guy. Yeah. Black power icon Angela Davis tried to enter Wounded Knee in March and was turned away by the feds. They were like, you're dangerous. You can't come in. Does that mean she got past the goons? Oh, interesting. Yeah, probably. I don't know. Buddy Lamont was the next defender to be killed by the feds. He was struck down by a sniper. His great-grandparents were with Crazy Horse at Greasy Grass Creek. His great-aunt and great-uncle were murdered in Wounded Knee 1. Buddy had gone off to Vietnam, idealistic and young, thinking he was fighting so his family could sleep safe at home. Then, once he was home, he went to Wounded Knee. He wrote to his mother during the occupation, If anything happens to me, just bury me at Wounded Knee. I don't want to be any trouble, so just bury me in my bunker. The government stole his body for an awfully long time and basically ransomed it back. And there's, like, quotes from, like, when the, like, one of the feds, like, sees how he died and is like, oh, we're going to have to change our story. (gasps) Fuck. This is kind of near the end. May 2nd, A government negotiator promised that he had the authority to ensure the government would discuss the Treaty of 1868 with the indigenous chiefs. On May 5th, they led in a delegation of White House representatives to inspect the place. And at this point, they were planning to surrender. They had this promise, and the death of Buddy had destroyed a lot of the morale. So on May 9th, the defenders surrendered, half-starved, with an agreement that a delegation from the White House would meet with their chiefs. I'm not shocked. Yeah, we don't we don't need to go through the uh, yeah uh, you know the ritual again. <laughs> By May 31st, the U.S. government didn't bother to show up to discuss anything with the chiefs. They sent a letter from a Nixon aide. None of the feds or the goons were ever indicted, but more than 500 indigenous people were indicted for their participation or support. 184 people had their charges stick, mostly the men, because the government figured it'd be harder to convince a jury that the women who were there in numbers too were evil terrorists or whatever, you know? And it was near the end of this occupation that Leonard Peltier gets out of jail on bail. And he was on his way to support the occupation with food relief when the occupation fell. He, you know, he was out on bail for like attempted murder of two, two cops. He was like, I'm not going to get a fucking fair trial. <laughs> so he no. he skips his bail. He goes underground and becomes a fugitive. And it is possible that the occupation was the high point of AIM organizing. And afterwards, the divisions start to manifest more strongly. Um, there are a few sources of tension. There's personality conflicts. There's centralized versus decentralized structure. 
There's to what degree discipline is required of members. There's uh, whether or not members are required to drink or not, or no one's being required to drink, whether members are allowed to drink. And then there's militancy. One of their big splits was basically like, do we take up arms and go to war against the U.S. at this point? Dennis Banks and Russell Means were more or less the figureheads of the two sides. Banks wanted discipline and sobriety. Means and Crow Dog were fine with drinking. Everyone is accusing everyone of being feds. Some of this turns violent. Nothing ever changes. Yeah. I thought about this a bunch, and I decided I don't want to get it too into the ins and outs of these divisions. Like, half of what you read about AIM are these divisions and these, like, personality conflicts. And then, like, real stuff that matters that happen between them. And so, I, but I don't want to talk about too much, partly because it's really messy and complicated, and partly because I think that a movement from the early 70s had divisions fostered by COINTELPRO is a better way to understand what happened than yeah. the he said, she said, unless you, unless someone wants to really get into it, you know? Right. And like trying to rehash those conflicts right. probably just like does the work of, of right. COINTELPRO. Right. And it's only worth pointing them out because we also need to be able to learn from our past. And these are some of the things that people were divided along. But one thing that sort of helped in an awful way, Banks and Means are soon on trial together for their role in Wounded Knee. They basically are like taken out from the rest and like, because they're like, oh, we're going to fuck these two. You know, we're like, these Mm -hmm. are the two, right? Everyone else we're going to get, but like, we're going to really get these two. So they have an eight month trial. The judge starts off assuming that the FBI and the prosecution are right and, like, starts off with a bias against the defense. But he gets angrier and angrier at the the prosecution's deliberate mishandling of evidence. Banks and Means were found not guilty on one charge, and the judge dismissed the rest, basically being like, seriously, prosecution, what the fuck is wrong with you? The case against them was so bad that seven of the jurors went on a campaign for the rest of the charges against the remaining defendants to be dropped. <sighs> Almost all of the remaining cases were dismissed or folks were found not guilty. I think Crow Dog and a few other people uh, served some time for Wounded Knee too. So the government was like, fine, we give up. You totally got away with it. You can have all your stuff. Just kidding. If the courts don't work, the feds, the militias, and, all, and Dick Wilson will just fucking fight dirty. In 1974. Yeah. I didn't fall for it that time. Yeah, no, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty gullible, but you didn't get that <laughs> In 1974, Dick Wilson stole his own re-election versus Russell Means. Like, the commission of the U.S. Commission of Civil Rights said more than a third of the ballots were tampered with. Um, and on, awesome. a, on election night, his goons had been out shooting into the air and terrifying people. But the judicial system was like, nah, he's our guy. And he stayed in office. He then tried to drive everyone who voted for means off the reservation at gunpoint. <laughs> like, this is the most corrupt wow. man in the history of corrupt men, you know? I mean, and, and like, that is some, like, dictator of a small nation yeah. shit. That is not, like, local pol- That is not local yeah. politics as usual. Right, totally. It's like, man, we better win the the city council seat or we will be evicted by the new, like, holy yeah. shit. Yeah, totally. From the place that our, like, people have lived forever, you know? By 1975, everyone who remained was armed and wouldn't walk around alone because his goons were killing so many people. Yeah. 
64 people were murdered that year, according to AIM. The FBI claims otherwise. Uh, I know which side I'm more yeah, likely I'm to not, believe. I'm not taking their word for any of this at this point. No. The town had the highest crime rate in the country that year. And the death that makes me saddest is that an 11-year-old lost his life when he found the rifle his parents had had to keep in order to keep him and themselves mm-hmm. safe from the goons. And he died. Um, and I think that there's just like a specific tragedy in the fact that sometimes people need to do cost-benefit analysis and choose to have firearms in, in situations that are dangerous. And yeah. my heart breaks for, for his parents. So Dick Wilson, eventually he kind of goes too far. A bunch of the white lawyer, a bunch of white lawyers. <laughs> I'm, are, I'm like, I can't wait to hear what go, what ends up being too far for this guy. He attacks some white people. Oh, I forgot about white people. Yeah, no, because the lawyers. Which is al- wild because I am white people. I know. Um, and you're a lawyer. You're our lawyer. Um, no, just no. Dead. All right. So a bunch of like lawyers for AIM are there and he like shoots up their airplane and shit. Like he's like personally involved in this attack. He like personally shows up to shoot at an airplane full yeah. of lawyers. Yeah, I, okay. I think the Again, lawyers are no longer a lawyer, <laughs> but like <laughs> lawyers are like not the people you want to go after if you're trying to no. avoid legal no. consequences because le- lawyers are legal consequences. They have I mean, those. Unfortunately, it still doesn't. So. It, so he doesn't shoot up the plane while they're in it. He shoots it up while they're not in it. But then he like okay, threatens I them. Mean, he like smashes up their car while they're in it. And he's like saying things like now you got a real res car because it's like fucked up, you know. Uh-huh. Um, and so he finally gets indicted. So he does this thing, which is clever, but it doesn't work, but it kind of works. Since he's like, he's the government, right? right. He, he finds himself $10 for his actions. <laughs> and then when the feds man i wish he weren't such a piece of shit because that's hilarious i know so then when the feds take him to court he's like oh this is double jeopardy i've already <gasps> oh he's literally doing the cop thing like i've already investigated myself and well he's already been found guilty he had to pay ten dollars yeah. you can't hold someone you know like you, you can't take someone to trial yeah. for the same crime twice right Th- that um, is that is like some legal advice that the lawyers on arrested development would give yeah totally like and so this doesn't work. They're like, you can't do that. We're the feds. We don't give a shit about your fucking petty kingdom. But they acquitted him anyway because he's the government's boy. Oh, shit. Yeah. Wow. It did work out for him. Yeah. And if you want to be acquitted, then you should listen to our, um, our primary sponsor, Don't Talk to Cops. Hi, Margaret Kiljoy here. Boy, the world sure is a mess right now, huh? Seems like every day there are more and more reasons to get out into the streets and protest. That's why, when I get arrested, there's only one strategy I trust. I shut the fuck up. I say, I would like to remain silent. I would like to talk to my lawyer. And then I shut the fuck up. In the United States of America, it's constitutionally protected and recommended by the National Lawyers Guild. That's S-H-U-T-T-H-E-F-U-C-K-U-P. Once again, that's S-H-U-T. T-H-E-F-U-C-K-U-P. Because you can't talk yourself out of custody, but you can talk yourself into a conviction. Providing identification to law enforcement required in some states and situations. Giving name and address expedient in most circumstances. Never discuss the events leading to arrest with anyone except your lawyer, doctor, or therapist. Posting pictures of protests and actions on social media may lead to complications. 
If you have already talked to cops or experienced confusion about talking to cops, call your attorney immediately, as these may be signs of more serious legal problems. The concept of not talking to cops does not provide legal advice, and the foregoing statements are for informational purposes only. If you have specific legal questions, consult an attorney. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, Dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of... dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. So, conditions are not great. Leonard Peltier is on the run, but he is not afraid of a fight. So by 1975, he... He goes up to Pine Ridge and he's helping out alongside a bunch of other AIM folks. And the, their stronghold, AIM's stronghold, is on the land of a family named Jumping Bull. They have a whole camp out with like 30 plus people living there. And they're more and more like trying to live in more traditional ways while they do it. And it's a, they're doing really cool shit, like completely unrelated to the fighting the government stuff. AIM warriors are out walking 30 miles a night to keep people safe doing patrols. Whenever a house is shot up by goons, because this happens like fairly regularly, the goons will be like, hey, fuck you and shoot up a house, um, which is a whole thing that people don't talk about much with like rural organizing. I've, um, the first time I, I spent much time in West Virginia, though, all these like anti-mountaintop removal miners were like having their houses shot up and stuff by like the pro 
There's just a you, people can get away with a certain type of specific thing in rural areas. Is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah, and shooting up buildings is um is much more like a thing that happens. Like yeah, in where you can just just kind of do that and drive away, and you're the only vehicle yeah. on the road for 30 miles. You're you're going to be fine. Right. So whenever a house is shot up by goons, AIM is there armed, ready to keep the family safe. They're also chopping firewood for elders. They're like re-roofing stores. They're counseling people through alcoholism. They're running bingo nights. They're just doing community work. They're doing the hard, thankless work of keeping a community together through crisis. All the while, they're talking about the treaties and they're talking about sovereignty. The AIM collective operated collectively. The vehicles, firearms, and food were all collectively possessed by all the folks doing that. Um, And the women in town, not just the AIM women, they made a game of tearing down all the wanted posters for Peltier because they kept the government and BIA like kept putting up all the wanted posters for them. And so finally they had to put the posters like behind glass frames and all this shit, you know? By June 1st, that's fine. Yeah, that's that's nice. That's nice solidarity. Yeah, totally. Pulling down wanted posters of your guy. Yeah, because everyone knows he's there. Yeah, you know. By June first, no, there's no point pulling down the wanted posters if he's not there. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. (laughs) By June first, nineteen seventy-five, the Pine Ridge traditional chiefs, including Charlie Red Cloud, the ninety-year-old grandson of the previous Red Cloud, signed a formal resolution of sovereignty. Like once again, like one of the primary things that indigenous people keep doing is restating that they are a sovereign people, a sovereign nation. Um, and there is good. I, I hope they succeed. I hope it sticks. Around this time, a BIA cop shot Russell Means, who survived. Uh, so, of course, the cop then charged Russell Means for assaulting an officer. Right. And AIM put out a statement that its members were to shoot back when fired upon even by law enforcement. So things are ramping up. And it's important to understand the way things are ramping up as gets to what we're going to talk about now. On June 25th, 1975, two feds and two BIA cops showed up to Jumping Bull's property asking around about a 19-year-old named Jimmy Eagle who was wanted for stealing some cowboy boots and like maybe beating some guys up. They had no warrant and they were shooed away. The two feds waited nearby and harassed more youth. Shooing them away is exactly what you should do if the feds show up at your door without a warrant. Yeah, they're like, you don't have a warrant, this is trespassing, get out. Yeah, fuck off. Then, the fateful day, the next day, June 26th, the two FBI agents come back to the stronghold of AIM. They want us to believe that two feds drove onto the reservation um, and into the heart of AIM's thing, even though they knew about the whole like shoot-back resolution, over stolen cowboy boots. This is possible. It's possible that it is just outright arrogance that brought them to that place. But the day before... Dick Wilson had just illegally transferred um, an eighth of the reservation property over to the U.S. government. What a coincidence. And, even wilder coincidence, the BIA SWAT team is just in the area doing maneuvers that day. Yeah, this definitely, sound, this definitely sounds like some people who care deeply about stolen boots. Yeah, absolutely. 
Although I wonder whether the two FBI agents, because it does not go well for them. They might have just been set up. They might have just been pawns. I mean, nobody ever accused the U.S. government of, like, caring too much about the people who work for it either. Yeah, Yeah, totally. Whatever the cause, these two feds show up into the center of an AIM compound, and a firefight breaks out at 200 yards with uh, firing from the two houses. Uh, I don't know who shot first. My money is on AIM shooting first, but I don't... get Whatever. Both federal agents were wounded, one mortally wounded. He was probably going to die. When someone, probably no one will ever know for certain, except for whoever this is, if they're still alive, walked up and executed them at close range. And it'll come up later that the the gun that executed them was an AR-15 shooting two two three ammunition. Agents responded as backup. Agents responding as backup were fired upon and a standoff occurs, during which one AIM member, Joe Killswright, was killed. He was wearing one of the FBI agent's jackets when he died, or as one journalist who, the, the one journalist who photographed the body suggested that actually the jacket was put on him after, based on um, where the blood was and wasn't on that jacket. Hmm. Meanwhile, goons and white militias show up to the area too, as do AIM supporters. So now there's like 20 AIM members, are on, they're on the land. The, the non-combatants have gotten out by and large. There's a couple like younger boys who surrender at this point, and fortunately they successfully surrender um, through lots of, complicated stuff the 20 a members who are left they're like if we stick around we're all going to die today and so they escaped and the way they did that is they figured that south was the more likely way there was like they had um they had one of the radios because they had killed you know two of the feds yeah so they had the radio and so they knew that there was less of a blockade to their south and so they started south and they weren't sure exactly which way to go. And they followed an eagle through the woods that like waited for them. And then they would like stop and then they would fly and show them this is the way to go now and stuff, you know. And wow. the path that they took, took them through the blockade. Like the path they took was blocked except for a brief moment when the agents took a break to go get a drink of water. Like literally we have the like transcripts of the radio communications, right? And it was like, hey, like, since we're all about to attack, like, y- y'all aren't as important right now. You can take a five-minute break, you know? Wow. And this is when the 28 members get through the blockade. Eventually, they're spotted. That's incredible. I know. And it's like, I, I don't have a, like, yeah, no, that, that happened, you know? Yeah. Um, eventually, they're, they're spotted as they're moving up this big open hill, Right. They're on the other side of the road. They're outside the blockade. And the cops are shooting at them and chasing, but they're delayed by warning shots coming from the retreating AIM members. And to hear the AIM folks talk about it, the BIA cops, actually the indigenous cops, weren't trying too hard to aim well at them. And no one was injured on either side. A crowd of supporters formed at the barricades. And while they're like moving up this hill, these two young men on horseback just like ride up and escort them. And they're like, what are you doing? Like, they're like, oh, we're here to help. And they're like, are you even armed? And they're like, we got a 22. Like, it's fine, you know? Um, God damn. And, uh, and, and help. That's very cool. Yeah. And they can like, and the, the feds can like see it all, I think, with binoculars and shit. Yeah. There's also a, um, 
there's a government plane that's like following their escape, but eventually it uh, it has to go for more fuel and they get away. They, you know, lose the trek at that point. And then they go and they like stay with supporters and shit like that and they go underground. And uh, also while they're fleeing, indigenous residents from elsewhere in the reservation are firing at the feds from other positions, which slows them down and keeps them from pursuing. It is nearly certain that they all would have been killed if they hadn't escaped the blockade. AIM refused to apologize for the killing. They stuck by their people. Eventually, uh, a couple weeks later, Peltier flees in an RV. He gets pulled over in Oregon, and he flees on foot, and he covers his escape by firing at the state trooper, and he gets away. He gets into Canada. Two other AIM members, Robert Robidau, who is Peltier's cousin, and Dino Butler are arrested for this. One other person is arrested, and they're like, no, we don't have enough charges. It won't stick. Um, So these two, Robert and Dino, go on trial for killing these agents. The federal jury found them not guilty by way of self-defense. They were justified for shooting those officers, according to the U.S. courts. Wow. Um, People do not often get found not guilty for reasons of self-defense. While shooting feds. While shooting feds. Yeah. Wow. And the big thing about it is that they're like, the only, they weren't the, whoever walked up and executed the cops who were wounded is the person that would not be able to get away with a self-defense case, essentially, according to the sort of way that all this court shit is going to unfold. On February 6th, 1976, Leonard Peltier is arrested in Alberta, Canada. His trial was fuckery from the start. Uh, an indigenous woman named Myrtle Poorbear was coerced into giving false testimony against him. She later retracted her statement, admitting she didn't even know Peltier personally, and she wanted to testify against the FBI. The judge wouldn't let her, claiming that she was incompetent. Two other witnesses recanted, claiming that they were also coerced into their testimony by the FBI. He was also on trial for two killings that another trial had already proven were self-defense. And the like the core of their argument is that they were executed with 223 or 556 is the same thing uh, they were killed by with an ar15 and uh leonard peltier was according to these witnesses the only person with a ar15 these are the witnesses who later said no that was all a lie i had to say that because they were threatening me and you know coercing me and all this shit right um, yeah there was no like uh, material evidence around like the firing pin. Like there was no forensic evidence that linked Peltier's gun to the casings that killed the cops. Um, all the testimony. It was a farce of a trial. Leonard Peltier claims his innocence. He he holds that he shot at the 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 agents, but that he was not the person who went up and. Um, the court has already determined that shooting at the agents is self defense. Right. And I read a long time ago, and I didn't specifically read this um, while doing this research this week. I read a long time ago that the uh, judge specifically told, either didn't didn't allow the jury to hear or didn't told the jury not to consider the fact that it was proven self-defense in a different court case. 
Um, That's fascinating. Yeah. So he gets two consecutive life sentences despite, uh, you know, fucking everything. Right. In 1977, he went to prison. In 1979, he did what many cool people who do cool stuff did, (laughs) which is he broke out of prison. (laughs) Yay. Along with two others. One of those escapees, Dallas Thundershield, was shot dead by a guard just outside the prison. Another was caught a mile behind the walls. Peltier made it for three days before he was caught after stealing food money in a truck from a farmer to aid his escape. Peltier claims his innocence. The cop who arrested him in Canada said that Peltier was extradited illegally and didn't get a fair trial. When you have your arresting officer claiming this, I would support Peltier either way, just to be clear. Uh, We support our political prisoners even when they're innocent. But there's a reason that to talk about this case, I wanted to spend two episodes on the treatment of Lakota people in the 19th and two episodes on their treatment in the 20th century, because I think that context is necessary to understand the self-defense case, you know? Yeah. The movement for his clemency, and specifically he wants clemency, not a pardon, because he's like, I didn't fucking do it. I don't want a pardon. He's like, I will not accept a pardon because I didn't do it. I did not, you know? Um, the movement for his clemency has included everyone from Nelson Mandela, Mother Teresa, the European Parliament. Uh, the UN's Human Rights Council released an analysis of his detention showing that it breaks three articles from the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. The fucking Pope tried to convince Obama <laughs> to commute his sentence. The U.S. attorney who supervised the prosecution against Peltier has tried multiple times to get Peltier free, saying that the case that he ran was bad. Um, so what you're saying is it's a real fringe position. Yeah, only Peltier. wild real, people. Real fringe stuff. Yeah, totally. Uh, the U.S. attorney said to the Chicago Tribune that the case against Peltier was, quote, a very thin case that would likely not be upheld by courts today. It is a gross overstatement to label Peltier as a cold-blooded murderer on the basis of the minimal proof that survived the appeals in his case. So Obama was like, nah, I'm good. Like, the FBI are my boys. Fuck this. I don't care. And Leonard Peltier is still in prison. But he has something that he wants to say to us because... The reason that I had Miriam on this show is that Miriam's partner is one of his lawyers and was in communication yeah. with him about this. Um, yeah, that is that is the big reveal that we teased last episode, this episode. I don't know. Whenever. My my partner is um one of the many lawyers um on this on this case. And Mr. Peltier has sent a statement um, from prison, which I am honored to read now. The Black Hills are a holy place to the Lakota Nation. The Fort Laramie Treaty of 1868 pledged that the Great Sioux Reservation, including the Black Hills, would be, quote, set apart for the absolute and undisturbed use and occupation of the Lakota Nation. 
the U.S. military was obligated by law to keep settlers and prospectors from trespassing into the Black Hills, but law is meaningless if it is not enforced. The Fort Laramie Treaty has never lost its legal validity, but after the discovery of gold in the early 1870s, the treaty was broken. The Black Hills were opened for settlement and illegally stolen from the Lakota Nation. These are our holy lands. After 100 years, it's long overdue for the treaty to be honored and for the United States to restore our sacred sites to us and stop robbing the minerals from the holy earth as they have been doing for more than a century. AIM, myself, and many natives for generations have fought for the return of the Black Hills, even though we had been so intimidated and so much violence done to us. Back in the 70s, the FBI tried to tell us that as a colonized people, we had to lay down and follow their rules. They did not understand that they were on our holy lands and that they were not following their own rules. Under Article 6 of the Constitution, treaties are the supreme law of the land. In order to abrogate or invalidate a treaty, Congress must make a clear statement of intent to terminate the treaty. The Treaty of 1868 was never abrogated. Even the Supreme Court of the United States ruled that the Black Hills were never lawfully taken from the Lakota Nation. We have never stopped fighting for the Black Hills, and we never will. I also have a message for the young natives out there. I know a lot of you are suffering. Know that we love you. We need you. You are part of us. Learn your language. Learn your culture. Who you are and who we are has always been a good thing, and we need you to keep living and being good on the earth. Don't despair. Resist despair. And stand with us for the land, for the water, for the people. In the spirit of Crazy Horse, Leonard Peltier. Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues 
pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right. 